Thanks for listening to Reawaken, creating community and meaningful action to shift paradigms in mental health, trauma and addiction, a podcast by The Humane Clinic. Hosted by Matt Ball and Stephanie Mitchell and produced by me, Rory Ritchie, aka Producer Dan. Incidental music by yours truly and our theme song is Hope by the talented Addo Mull. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this word is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleed. Welcome to Reawaken Podcast number one. We're here as your hosts. I'm Matt Ball. I'm Stephanie Mitchell. And uh, we're also here with uh, Rory Donovan or Rory Ritchie, our producer. Hey, Rory. Hello. Very excited. Yeah. What are you excited about, Rory? Getting to hear you two. Pick your, pick your brains and hear what you have to say and share it with everybody, more importantly. Yeah, nice. And that sort of sets us up, really, what Reawaken's about. It's, um, it's a podcast that's going to talk a bit about our sort of thoughts on mental health, trauma, addiction, where we're going, human connection. Mm. We're going to go from there. Yeah, we'll see how the conversation unfolds, really. Okay, so thanks for joining us. I know what I want to get straight into today. I want to talk about um, colonisation as mental health systems evolve. Um, and what I mean by colonisation is someone comes up with an idea and very quickly we try and fit those ideas in the, in the mental health situation into the current systems. Mm. And so we want a peer workforce, but it's always going to be in the same paradigm as psychiatry, nursing, social work, occupational therapy, psychology. Mm-hmm. So presumably it'll start to look a bit like that. Mm. And and I, I'm hearing that you being very product, provocative, so I suppose I'm just sitting in a space of wanting to be curious about that so that listeners kind of get the full picture of where that's coming yeah. from, you know, as we go on and chat. So, yeah. yeah, I think this is what it's going to be like, isn't it? I'm going to launch into stuff. Yeah, that's and, okay. And <laughs> we'll find out what it sounds like. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the full picture is we have a mental health system that is beginning to acknowledge that trauma is in people's lives but doesn't really know what to do with it. Mm. So then mm. acknowledges it and moves away from it again. Yeah. Mm. Um, like could, lip surface. Yeah. And then kind of like says they're trauma-informed and then people sort of go, thank God, finally some trauma-informed care. But then it's almost more traumatising because there's some acknowledgement of it but then they're still treated in this way that... Um, doesn't put them first or really see their needs. Yeah, I, I really like what you said there. You know, we, it's almost like if you say you're trauma-informed, then you're trauma-informed. Job mm. done. Yeah. doesn't actually mean anything. It's a bit like saying we're going to do recovery. So now everyone says they do recovery in mental health and yes. addictions. Yeah. But I don't really know what that means when, when no one's doing anything different mm. and you're still holding the power or so. Well, I was just going to say something quite provocative and that is sort of just about how you know like a lot of the times when we talk about having even more recovery we talk about more and more policies and it's like we talk about the mental health act and you look at the act it sounds amazing but it doesn't actually get put in practice of what is in writing and so I'm really interested in um you know me I always go to thinking about you know how do we do it differently but maybe just to stay where you are you're sort of saying something along the lines of the powers part of the problem yeah i think it is and i think you know this week or last week we heard the royal commission in victoria in mental health talking about whether we need a national mental health act 
you know, maybe we can start talking about what the Mental Health Act is actually about. And the Mental Health Act is well-intentioned, I think, and certainly in terms of labour hours, a well-worked-through document. Each state and territory or have their own. Um, but in fact, what they, they say is that if someone's got a mental disorder or we suspect someone's got a mental disorder to a degree where there's such a risk that I, I as a professional judge there's such a risk, then we can enforce what we call treatment mm. and actually restrict people's rights and liberties. Mm. And being that the mental disorder labels that we use in mental health and even in addiction actually are made up constructs, you know, well-intentioned, made up constructs by professionals, predominantly psychiatry, but with the help of other disciplines. It, it, you know, my question about the Mental Health Act and the whole paradigm of mental health, trauma, addiction is, is it just, you know, the way we've set it up, is it kind of a breach of human rights? Mm -hmm. It's certainly a social justice issue, but is it, is it actually go further than that and be, yeah, a breach of people's human rights to be how they are, to live Mm -hmm. how they are and genuinely be supported in whatever experience they're in, which which is, you know, probably a very legitimate experience, given life, given the life events they've experienced. Mm, yeah, and and what comes up for me is, I'm sitting with two things, and one is I can hear the sort of dominant thoughts and and narrative out in society that you know, yeah, but Matt, these people, you know, they they're dangerous or they're they're in distress or they need our help or whatever label we put on that. And then I'm sitting with another sort of side of things, and that is this sense of, as you say that, I was like, oh, my gosh, imagine if we allowed space for people to be fully who they are. Mm. So when they're in distress, there's a legitimate response, not a pathologizing you're broken, go over there, we're going to kind of somehow just medicate you just enough to sedate you and make you manageable, but a legitimate like, oh, that's frightening and I wonder what would be helpful right now. I'm going to be around for long enough. Mm. And and then I kind of think we'd actually end up with the, the, the outcome that the first cohort of people are talking about. They're saying we, we get frightened and we want safety and we want these people to be better. Mm. But we're doing it in this kind of this way that makes the whole thing worse for the person. Maybe, yeah. maybe it makes me feel a bit better because I can shove that person over there and I don't have to be in relationship to that and I can say that's not me. Yep. Um, but ultimately we actually perpetuate the problem as much much. Um, it's much more distress for the person, but also for, for the rest of us, in you know the society who worries about that sort of stuff. And actually, I'm just yeah. finishing off what I was going to say, just to say that I, I think if we sat alongside people um, in those spaces in acceptance, then that's where the healing comes. And so we kind of end up with the, the result people want. Yeah. I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, look, I think that's really powerful, and I've got a whole range of thoughts around. Some people will say, oh, yeah, but depression and anxiety, you know, we've reduced the stigma, we've made everyone feel more comfortable that it's okay to suffer with depression mm-hmm. or with anxiety or, um, you know, bipolar is quite a famous popular disorder for um, wealthy pop stars and authors. But um, the reality is, is that if you go to a public mental health system and get diagnosed with bipolar, it doesn't look a lot like um, Robbie Williams or Stephen Fry. Yeah. It looks a lot like other people are telling you what's wrong with you mm. and what you need to make your life manageable. Now, I'm not criticising any, any individuals who've got a label that they value. But So when you say what you say, though, it, it makes me think, how do we actually move away from 
the first cohort you're talking about where we have to put people in these boxes and why don't we move away from that? And I, yeah. I think it's about our fears. You know, R.D. Lang said, you know, the, the therapist, if, if that's what we want to call the supporter, the therapist has to be willing to transpose themselves into the world of the other and, for, and, and c- contemplate their own sanity. Yes. But they don't have to forego their sanity mm. to do that. Mm. And that seems to be the mental health environment that I'm talking about, that you're talking about, that Reawaken's talking about, is what, it, what if it's okay for me to just be with someone in whatever state they're in, in whatever space they're in, um, knowing that the human relationship, the connection, the deep compassion and the commitment of both me and the other to go wherever the other person wants to go is in place. Maybe that's how we reawaken to people's mental well-being, people's responses to trauma, people's use of substances as pretty normal, pretty understandable and pretty meaningful realities. Mm. And, it, and it reminds me of what PJ, PJ Moynihan of you know, Healing Voices, I love he, the way he talks about complex relationships with substances for addiction. And I, and I think maybe we could normalise addiction by saying, I ate some chocolate today even though I'm trying not to. Mm-hmm. And there was a narrative behind that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's quite like injecting heroin, but perhaps there's some similarities in principle there, was that something emotionally was feeling a bit awkward for me, so I went and bought some chocolate when I shouldn't. <laughs> and that's a complex relationship I have with, with, with chocolate. chocolate. Other people have complex relationships with other substances. Mm. <laughs> what do you so think? So we normalise that, is what you're saying? Yeah. My, head, my head's right back. A little while ago you said something and I, I was thinking... That R.D. Lang quote, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and um, the, the lady on there was saying that, um, you know, to be able to be with people suffering, we have to be able to be comfortable with our own suffering. Mm. And I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? This when, when someone's in a difficult place, mostly our society doesn't know how to sit with that because we're also busy trying to work to make enough money. So I, I shut down my feelings in relation to myself and my partner, I'm saying mm. by and large at um, in our society because I've got to go to work and I've got to, you know, put my kids into care and I've got to make sure I get the boss, make sure the boss is happy or the whatever mm. and I don't have much time for my friends and, you know, so we're all busily doing these things and feelings aren't really valued in our society mm. by and large. We kind of give lip service to it but ultimately when it comes to it it's sort of like pockets of people who sort of yeah. say it's okay to turn up to work and be a bit messy but mostly most employers will say don't don't do that and most friends will go oh do you need to see a psychologist they won't say oh gosh do you want to talk about it yeah yeah, yeah. do you want to spend the next hour sitting having a, a good natter yeah. about what's going on yeah. yeah and so i think that this kind of like the way our society's become very what i call kind of um expertized like you need an expert for everything mm. Um, you know, you need, you can't just sit with a friend. You have to send them to the psychologist or the psychiatrist or the GP or the, um, you know, get some drugs or, you know, you have to send, mm. you can't just be with your child who's having distress. You've got to go and see the pediatrician or the, maybe the child has ADD or, you know, there's sort of like all of these extra layers. Anyway, yeah. just to say, I think that's part of the problem when you sort of say um, about, how do we, as a society, start to sit with distress? I'm like, well, we have to start, each of us has to start to sit with our own distress, all those yeah. little things that, you know, we're avoiding in ourselves. And the yeah. people that I know who find it easier to be with people in distress seem to be those who are, have faced a bit of their own 
experience. Yeah, and, and I think that's where we get to the lived experience voice, right? But I, one of the things I love about yeah. you talking about lived experience is you say that we've all got a lived experience of being human. Being human, and within that is a, ba- a range of emotions. Absolutely. So I, I've experienced loss in my life. Yes. And that was deeply painful. Well, how do I skillfully bring that into my relationship with whoever I'm in relationship with? Yeah. Maybe I've experienced childhood trauma. How do I deeply and skillfully bring that into the relationship? I mean, you know, mm. I, I've experienced three car accidents in the last five years. I haven't, by the way, but had I experienced lots of car accidents, I would know the experience of post-traumatic stress responses, mm. not disorders, responses. <laughs> How do I respond when post a stressful event? I you know, that, that. that seems to be really powerful to me. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, so you know, I think that we should probably take a bit of a break. Yep. And then we'll come back and talk about some of the uh, the disorders labels that people love to talk about. Great. Because I reckon you might have something to say about that. <laughs> Rory, right. have you got anything to say before we have a quick break? Um, no, just that it occurred to me when Steph was talking about kind of our societal responsibilities of stepping between into work and having to put on the brave face and these hats that we have to put on. So you put on the professional self hat and you're not allowed to be messy at all. So we have a kind of a society of mm. the sad clown going off to work every day and then mm. where is this space just to be our true selves yeah. Yeah. with everybody. Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll be back. You're listening to Reawaken, talking about alternatives in mental health addiction and trauma. Welcome back to uh, Reawaken. Um, we're going we're gonna to continue where we were, mm-hmm. talk a bit about some of the labels that people are given um, and maybe a bit about where we're coming from. Yeah, that'd be good. Is that all right? Do you want to yeah. kick off that or do you want to... No, what you, were wanting, you mentioned at the end about labels, so I'm curious to what you were thinking. Yeah, look, I suppose I was wanting to contextualise the first bit of our conversation today. You know, I went into talking about stuff that's in my head and you in, in your head. And then in the break, we were talking about, oh, what's the context of what we're talking about? So I was thinking about, you know, we have mental health systems around the world, uh, particularly in developed countries, which say if you're in a certain level of distress and your friend can't cope and refers you on or tells you where to go, you go to your GP or a psychologist or a doctor or a nurse or OT, social worker, wherever you find yourself being told that person over there can help you. And very quickly, those systems will pathologize you. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is they'll end up giving you a label. You know, everybody's heard of depression, anxiety, and OCD, post-traumatic stress disorder, those sort of labels. But we're also talking about schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, borderline personality disorder, you know, and, and all these massive labels, mm-hmm. which really are about the person giving the label, not about the person who's got the label. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wanting to contextualize. We're talking about mental health as well as that we're talking about addiction. You know, we, we have separate services in many places for addictions. Um, and one of the things that reawaken last year or this year and in the future years is going to be about is that is there really a difference between addiction, mental health and trauma? You know, we know that most people that end up using public services for support around emotional distress who end up being labelled as addicted or mentally disturbed or in some way distressed to the point of needing clinical professional help or have a life of trauma, um, actually 
are talking about threats in relationship. Mm. Yeah. Whether that's childhood trauma or a crash in a car that was driven by people or, you know, an assault in public or mm. a fallout in relationship or domestic violence, whatever. What, what we're talking about is that, wow, something's happened in what you hoped was a safe environment of relationship mm. and mm. it wasn't. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is how we can avoid the labels. We can move away from the labels and start talking about how we can be supportive and connected in community um, by understanding that what people are telling us in their expression of addiction or mental health or whatever is, is really meaningful. And mm. what they're actually asking for is, can, can you sit with me? Mm. Can you spend some time with me? Because mm -hmm. I'd love to know if I'm mad or if you think I'm terrible <laughs> or you think I'm stupid or foolish. And maybe I can just say no. I probably don't think any of those things. <laughs> I'd quite like to hear. Yeah, yeah. I was just reflecting, Matt, that this past week I've had a really difficult time. I've come back from um, some training in Italy and I'd processed some of my own trauma stuff. Mm. And coming back into the space, I felt a bit mad. I was really, really distressed and not mm. sleeping well, nauseous, panicked, mm. all of that. And, I, and just it was lovely to come into the clinic and have the invitation to be messy in the space and be accepted you know yeah and um and i think that you know that was so helpful for me to find a, a space to to um have a different experience yeah so what you're saying is you you were feeling somewhat distressed a bit bit a uh, bit of upheaval mm. you know flying internationally with jet lag yeah. and being in a therapy training a week and you came to work yeah, I came and to talked work. about what yeah. was going on rather yeah, than going to a to doctor work. or a psychologist. Yeah. Or a... Well, I rang you in the morning. I think I rang you yeah. before you were awake yep. and left a message yep. and um, said, look, when you wake up, I need a call. I'm not doing so well. Mm. And then you called hey. me before work and you said, come on in and be messy. It's okay. And Yeah. What were you going to say? I think I, I think I was interested you called me before I was awake and I didn't give you an emergency response because I was asleep. <laughs> yes, well, I knew you would be. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. But I think this is a really important part of the conversation about what, how mental health services need to respond. Mm, yes. You know, just because you rang me at quarter past six in the morning mm. didn't mean I had to ring you at 16 minutes past six in the morning. <laughs> it could wait till eight o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Because you're not broken. No. You're, you're, you're meaningfully distressed. Mm. And as soon as I'm available, then I'll... I'd really love to connect with you. Mm. And we did. And I, I remember saying, oh, maybe you could just hang out with me all day and come to all my meetings with me. And yeah, yeah. It just seemed like a really logical thing to do. Yeah, it was lovely. It was a really sweet invitation to... I think you were going to go and meet the minister mm. or the minister's assistant. And so we are going to drive into the city together and hang out and just talk in the car and I could cry and be messy if I wanted or we could not. I could laugh and find something different. Mm. Did, you, did you need to see a professional that day? No. Oh, mm. gosh. I suppose that's what we're talking about, isn't it? You know, and, and just because you're talking a bit about your own story, I think it's useful for people to know. Like I spent four years in the public mental health system as we're talking about, you know, being treated with medication, ECT, hospitalisation, several different labels of psychotic features and schizophrenia and depression and all those fairly laborious, tiresome labels. And... Um, you know, I also have my own childhood experiences, which were very traumatic. Mm. And I suppose, you know, just as you're saying, in a moment of distress on Friday, you were there for me. I, we talk about this regularly in the mm. workplace and mm. we invite anyone to talk about 
What is it that you're bringing to work today? What mm. is it that you're bringing into today that mm. you happen to be bringing to work? Mm. You know, how could any of us sort of be available to you? And I'm not saying there isn't a space for mental health services, but maybe mental health services could more, look more like that. Yeah, that'd be beautiful if that was the case. Yeah. And do you guys think this is something that every workplace can do, or are you in a particularly unique situation considering your profession? Is this something we can do for each other at home or at work? Or? Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. I think the simple answer is yes, it can be everywhere. And then this is a bit what we were talking about earlier for me. I don't know what you think, Steph, but we talk about healthy workplaces and honestly, a lot of the time that's just bullshit. You know, yeah. that is people saying we're a healthy workplace and then you talk to people in that workplace and they say there's bullying, horizontal mm -hmm. violence, um, interdisciplinary rivalry. Um, I was watching on Twitter today, but even in the peer lived experience movement, no, I say even, but it's not surprised, but there's lateral violence going on. Mm -hmm. So we talk about these environments of safety and workplaces, but in reality, I wonder how many are. Mm -hmm. I wonder. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I do know that, you know, we think about peer work and I think a lot of peer workers, a lot of workplaces, when we think about peer work, kind of expect people to be broken and not be able to come to work. So if you're a peer worker and you're having a hard day, you're given a lot of compassion to stay home. Mm. You know, you're not given compassion to turn up and be a bit messy and, and find yourself <laughs> yeah. around in the place. Yeah. <laughs> trust to be able to do that. Yeah. To still do your job. That's right. Oh, well, yeah. I think that's so important. I think this is really the crux of it, right? And there's loads of these little moments in our work is that we'd more likely give this lovely, apparently, in inverted commas, compassion to the, to the lived experience person because underlying that, we might actually think they're not as strong as others. That's right. Yeah. Whereas maybe we could offer compassion to anyone to stay at work. Mm. You know, maybe there is nothing more important in the workplace than us being connected and feeling safe enough. Mm. And having some people around, you know, yeah. like we, we need we need relationship. And when yeah. we're in a difficult place, being at home, well, what have we got? We've got our thoughts. <laughs> We've got all that distress all to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So being able to sort of be in a space where I don't have to pretend to be okay and I also, so I can reach out for support when, in the moments when I need it. So I think this is what's missed. Whether you're psychotic, whether you're having a panic attack, whether you've got anxiety, bipolar, whatever the thing is, okay, whatever label you've been given for your experience, okay, mm. um, it's, all, it's only moment to moment. So some moments that Friday I was mm. very able to get on and do work and other moments I was really frightened and overwhelmed and mm. other moments I was really encouraged by conversations with you and mm. um, other moments I went and had a nap. Yeah, and I, I really value what you said about, you know, I was frightened at times because this is language we're not supposed to use. Okay, yeah. You, you know, we, we switch again to the disorder stuff. Oh, you were frightened. So you are really anxious, yeah? <laughs> you know, you're really panicky, yeah? Well, these are all words and languages that yeah. we associate with the medicalization of distress. Mm. You know, so... You went and got some chocolate. Oh, that's a habit, isn't it? Or it was really nice to have a bar of chocolate when I was feeling a bit emotional. <laughs> well, okay, good. Do that then. You know, but we don't need to say you're habitually using chocolate when you're having panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And I think that this seems to be what we're talking about is how do we not only avoid labeling in the big sense of this disorder, that disorder, but how do we 
also avoid sort of unconscious or covert labelling. Of behaviour. Of behaviour, yeah. which is related to the disorders. Yeah. But we pretend it's not. I, I love that comment because it's like that's part of the dilemma yeah. in my mind is the way we treat people is we label them with something that sort of says this is who you are, we know now, because yeah. you're bipolar. So when you have the slightest bit of a down day or something, <laughs> yeah. okay, then we know what that is because that's your depression yes, mode. Yes, that's right. Okay. And then any behaviours <laughs> around that we can also kind of put into this camp of, um, you know, like, yeah. well, you're sleeping a lot, so that, that also means that this is a behaviour that's problematic mm. and we need to get on top of that in order to get you back to sort of steadiness again. But don't get too excited because we don't want you to go into mania. And then, yes. you know, like, then we're going to any... So if you decide, look, you really have decided, you've thought a bit about it, you've been saving up, you're going to have a holiday... But you're just coming out of depression. I'm probably going to question whether that's a right decision right now because yeah. maybe you're going straight into mania. Do you remember when you booked your trip to Italy? Yes, I do remember. And it was quite impulsive, wasn't it? Was it was very impulsive, actually. Yes. Yeah. How much did it cost you? What? Six thousand dollars. Gosh, that is an impulsive. I know. Behavior, isn't yes. it? I was very, very, very excited. Oh, that's quite manic. <laughs> I mean, we're being a bit facetious, I'm being a bit facetious, but I think this is what happens, isn't it? In the context of the labels that you or I might have been given in our lives, mm. it would be easy to see some of our behaviours mm. as related yeah. to those labels. But they're other people's labels, they're mm. the system's labels, and they're not really relevant to you going and having an incredible experience in Italy. Mm. So actually it was a really good decision to, mm. on a whim, spend $6,000 on a trip to Italy because it was really important and powerful. Mm. And what you've done is you'll come home and be more skilled now to offer support to others mm. as well as to your own journey. That's right. So thank goodness for your sort of what might or might not be phrased as a slightly impulsive, manic yeah. decision because actually in our clinic that's been a real gift. And, you know, I love that you've used that word gift because I think that... Um, you know, I, I just want to take it one step further. It wasn't just my decision to go overseas that was impulsive and maybe a gift. My messiness when I came back was a gift too. Yeah. And it was a gift to me, you know, that mm. I got to experience something about myself that I yeah. haven't had before. And then that makes, it just makes my life richer and, and it means that I can, as you say, work in a different space with people. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, I actually did go. You said that I have to reach out to a professional on that day. I did go and see someone, but it was an acupuncturist. Oh. Yeah. And so that was oh. really great because that helped downregulate my nervous system quite a bit when I'm in that kind of real heightened. Wow. So you had the insight to know that that would be useful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I always, I always know that when I'm in that state, the acupuncture somehow helps the central nervous system downregulate. Yeah. I wonder if acupuncture is a prescription for any of the mental disorders. Yeah, I'm wondering about that. I was thinking that maybe <laughs> it's one of the parts of my mania or something that yeah. I have to do that, and that's a behaviour that we need to be careful yeah. of. So you didn't need a mood stabiliser or an no, antipsychotic. No. You needed someone to stick needles in yeah. you through a Chinese medicine approach. <laughs> that's right. But what I was going to say about that is when I went to see him, he said to me, well, hang on a second, you're getting all worked up about this, but really think about it. You've just processed a huge trauma at this psychotherapy training. Mm. You're jet lagged. You've come home. And he said, and you're, you, 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 things are shifting inside. And he went as far as to say, and I'm not fully involved in the spiritual emergence movement, but I, I'm interested in it. And he said, you're just having a kundalini awakening. Yeah. <laughs> Bless him. And, and I, it was really nice to hear that. I was like, yeah. you know, like how about if I just frame this as I'm having a oh, bit of a lovely. crisis because I've been through a lot. 
Yeah, you I know? feel really relieved to hear that. Yeah. You know, someone didn't get caught up in saying that there was something wrong with you. They said there was something important yeah. inside you. Yeah. How and that's you? where I love this idea of the gift. Yeah. Because I'm like, as soon as he said that, I was like, God, I get to be with this experience. I don't have to be frightened of it. I get to go, mm. this is something I'm going to come through that has value. Mm. And... um. It's hard when you're in the midst of it to believe that, but it was really nice to hear that message because it buoyed me for the rest of the time and I was like, okay, I'm going to stay with this and yeah. stop running. Yeah. yeah. I really liked Matt's reaction mm. to the Kundalini comment because I felt the same. I felt really lightened by that. Yeah. And more so the fact that there's different ways of seeing things and we get so caught up in our Western medical diagnosis mm. world that we forget in different parts of the earth right now and at different times we've had different yeah. ways to explain human emotion. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it's probably a, a really useful place for us to think about wrapping up today is to sort of take that idea that in different places, different people make different sense of different or same experiences. Mm. Mm. And that's happening as we're speaking. And you mentioned the sort of medic moving away from the medicalization. I think... You know, this isn't an anti-podcast. This is a, a, a positive podcast mm. because this is about, we know that any profession, through any of the clinician, clinical professions, through to peer work, through to support work, through to family, loved ones, through to the individual, any of us can make sense or be told how to make sense. And I think what we're promoting is how, how we can find ways to walk alongside people and offer mm offer these ideas that we have without oppressing them and laying them onto people. So your, your acupuncturist talked about a kundalini awakening and I heard you say, you know, I'm not really fully into the spiritual emergent stuff, but you found value in it. Yeah, so you could take, in the moment of needing to down-regulate your arousal centre, you could still choose which aspects of that gift you could take. Mm, yeah. And wouldn't that be a amazing mental health structure addiction field mm. trauma field you know that's trauma informed practice what do you need what do you make of this experience how are you experiencing this mm. right now rather than you need to experience this like this because i'm telling you this is how it is oh yeah don't get me started on that that's a whole other podcast all right so we're going to be back every week and we're going to be talking about different labels we're going to be talking about um different things that come up in the day-to-day -day running of a practice that wants to use non-medical approaches to mental health mm. um, and from time to time I guess we're going to have some guests but yeah. mostly it's going to be the three of us hanging out having a yarn and we look forward to connecting with people yeah it's going right. to be great ok anything anyone wants to say before we wrap up uh, looking forward to more stories new yeah. stories yeah, new great. Ways yeah. Of nice I love that new stories new great. stories thanks great story. thanks a lot we'll see you next time bye bye Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this word is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleed. Hope is the irie in the weed. So give hope and live hope. And when your kids are hungry, feed them hope. If the system bleeds you dry, have hope. If the situation makes you cry, have hope. Now it's time to dry your eyes and hope That that'll keep your dreams alive I hope that you hope 
Cause everyone's future is resting on your hope Can take the worst thing and turn it around Hope can find the lost that was not to be found Hope can make the loser them start gaining ground and Hope can turn your pennies right back into pounds Cause hope can be rebuilt even when it's been killed And if you believe, your hope will be fulfilled But people lied just to raise your hope Just to make you think that they're helping you cope They're selling you eggs without no yolk They're wearing you down until your will is broke This ain't real hope, they don't feel hope They real hope and deal hope and turn it into false hope Then we give up on this world like it's a sinking boat We let each other drown instead of flinging the rope We're turning the place into some kind of joke But we can't laugh, we can't lose hope In these times while they commit these crimes Because there's nothing else out here keeping us afloat Hope is elusive, a glint in the eye That something is exclusive, a thing they can buy or make excuses, they just sit and ask why Our mistakes are conclusive, hope will just die But I wouldn't lie, singing all lullaby Give hope a try, and hope gets high You'll be bereaved, but you'll also receive Have hope, can be deceived, you've just got to believe And hope, don't let it leave, or ever receive Just hope, and then one day, you're going to succeed You can't live without hope, don't go without hope Hope will keep you warm when you're shivering with cold Hope will make you young when you're tired and old Hope can make a bright man hearty and bold And hope can find the truth that has never been told Cause some people take hope and some people fake hope But you are the people, you people here You're the ones that I feel are sincere You're raising my hope, will hold your hand when you're feeling secure Hope will find a way through any locked door Make a point to the wise, even when there's a floor Hope will fill your belly when you think you need more Stop disease when there isn't a cure Hope will do it all, and so much more And so much more And so much more And so much more Hope will do it all And so much more